And the bright light was uh, what you thought, even in that state of mind, was death. Is that correct? Well, well, I, I, I can remember it. It, it, w it was coming at me though. It was always in the. It was always in the right lower quadrant. You know, about five o'clock <laughs> in your visual field, whatever that visual field is when you're unconscious and uh, uh, doing that. But I can remember, you know, the bright light, and I can remember steering my attention away from the bright light. There's, there, there's a scene in the movie Shrek. Where, where, where it says donkey, stay away from the light. And so I, I don't know if that's what ingrained in me or what. But anyways, I had it. My mind was doing whatever it wanted to. We're walking off the path and stepping on lost things. Slowly but surely we'll make it through. where you grew up, went to college, medical school, and where you trained for residency, and then where your career has taken you since then, and what and where your position is now. Yeah, well, I'm Scott Cates. I'm a hospitalist at Henry Ford in uh, Detroit. Um, grew up in a little uh, small uh, town of just 1,600 people in the thumb of Michigan about an hour and a half uh, north of uh, Detroit. Grew up there, uh, my uh, father is there, my mom uh, lives uh, there, they're divorced and remarried, which will come to some of the questions when we talk about my uh, how my father did through this uh, pandemic. Uh, a couple of uh, brothers uh, there. Went to school at Michigan State for both undergrad and uh, medical school. Did my training at Henry Ford, so I've never ventured uh, far out of uh, Michigan. Uh, met my wife first three days I was on campus at Michigan State, so known her for a very uh, long time as uh, well. I uh, uh, started doing internal medicine after residency. I uh, did a couple of years in uh, small town private practice because I always wanted to be a country doc. Came back home to Henry Ford. I've spent most of my uh, career there. And then about uh, four or five years ago, transitioned from being an outpatient uh, primary care doctor to a hospitalist. I figured I had one more career move in me and so, and, and I've enjoyed that thoroughly. Hmm. And so are you the, the chief of uh, hospital medicine there? No, no, no. I, um, I spent a couple of years as a detoured uh, one other time away from uh, Henry Ford and spent some time as a chief quality officer. That was fun, but I think the patient room is a lot more fun than the boardroom. I've uh, been in the C-suite for a while. so. 
I'd rather do uh, research and teaching and patient care than administration. It's just what excites me more. And so I tried that. I always tell everybody I had that itch. I scratched it and I'm good now. And I'm uh, uh, continuing to do uh, primarily uh, patient care. My, my true love is teaching. And so are you mostly on the teaching service or somewhat on the yeah. non-teaching as well? Yeah, probably 80% of my time when I'm seeing patients is with uh, uh, residents. Hmm. Got it. Tell me about your family. Yeah, so um, met my uh, wife at Michigan State. Uh, we have two uh, grown children. I have a son that's in uh, uh, Texas, actually just got his uh, doctorate uh, last year. Uh, he teaches um, collegiate band. And then I have a daughter that is in uh, the Detroit metro area. She's a senior copyright uh, editor. She's very talented and artistic. And she found a way that she could be an artist that could also pay bills. And she works for an advertising firm. Oh, excellent. So take me back, if you could, Scott, to the early days of the pandemic before you got sick. And I know Detroit was particularly hard hit for a while by COVID. Were you taking care of a lot of patients with COVID around that time? Yeah, I, I was. In, in fact, uh, after New York, then there was a, the next series of uh, cities that got really uh, uh, clobbered and Detroit was one of them. It's pretty amazing. Within about two weeks, we went from our very first case of COVID in the hospital to 90% of the beds were COVID. We were just completely overrun. And so we very quickly, days after our first uh, case, we canceled elective surgeries, we emptied out the surgical floors, and we just started redeploying everybody. And so we opened up a, a COVID floor with 24 beds and we recruited the orthopedic residents to, uh, to now be COVID doctors uh, because we weren't doing any elective orthopedic surgery outside of the, uh, the fractures and stuff. And we were diverting stuff away because we were full. Our, our, our hospital has some uh, uh, community hospitals that at, for a week or two weren't getting as hit hard than everybody in the Detroit metro area uh, got uh, hit. And so I got a call from my uh, division uh, uh, head and said, Scott, I need someone to go down. Here's a floor, 24 pay, uh, beds. They're all full. Uh, you get some orthopedic uh, residents and uh, physician assistants and go figure it out. And of course, then everybody was still figuring out how to take care of this virus. And the rules were changing sometimes by the hours the protocols came out as we did. Uh, rapid learning. And I did that for just under two weeks. And the only reason that I uh, stopped is because then I got sick and I, I knew I was sick and therefore contagious and couldn't come to work. Mm -hmm. And tell me about um, what kind of the early symptoms you had were when you got sick two weeks after starting that unit. Yeah. Well, I, I knew what I had because, first of all, I'd taken care of enough patients by then to know what the signs and symptoms were, so it was real clear. But it was the typical fatigue, uh, fever, a little bit of cough, the, uh, it, which increased uh, over uh, time. But it was the body aches, and you know, I had pretty much the textbook uh, stuff. But they were, you know, 
for people that have had a really bad cold or flu, at least for me, and have felt that, take that and then ramp it up a whole bunch is what I got. So I was just clobbered in bed for a week before I ended up uh, going to the uh, hospital. And was your taste an olfactory sensation intact or? No, I didn't lose that. I know that's, you know, 20, 30% of uh, folks and it's such a specific sign for uh, COVID, but uh, mine was not, but no appetite. In fact, I ended up uh, going to the emergency room uh, twice just to get IV uh, uh, fluids. And then I borrowed an uh, oxygen saturation meter from um, from one of my neighbors uh, had one because that, of course, is the critical thing that you uh, must watch. And so I was watching that all the time. And and how did things then develop from there? Well, I just I, I got weaker and weaker and felt worse and uh, worse. But the O2 saps were okay. And at that time, that's all you. That's what got you in the hospital. If you didn't need oxygen, we didn't have anything else back then that we thought was going to be helpful. So there was not a need to be in the hospital and there wasn't any beds in the hospital anyways. And so I did that. And then I just, I called my primary care doctor up who happens to be a very close friend, work colleagues. We shared an office for many uh, years uh, together. So this is sort of a special uh, situation. And when my oxygen saturation um, dropped, I called him up, I know in an afternoon and said, it keeps dropping and it's consistent. It's not just a blip on the O2 sap machine. And I had driven myself uh, earlier in the week twice to the emergency room because I had the energy. I could barely get off the couch. I said, I don't think I can, I don't have the stamina to drive even 20 minutes uh, to the hospital. And he got up from the dinner table and he had a mask on and I had a mask on and he was seeing COVID patients anyways and rounding downtown. and. He put me in the back seat. He said his wife and kids weren't using the car because it was contaminated because he was coming back and forth and um, and drove me to the hospital and put me on his service and started taking care of me. And so I got a little bit of VIP uh, treatment in that way. <laughs> kind of a nice taxi ride there, I guess, with the doctor. Yeah, yeah. And what was the lowest that your oxygen saturation got before you went into the hospital? Oh, I, I, I didn't wait very long. I didn't, I didn't play limbo with this. So and when it got down to 92, 91 with moving around, that's a threshold mm -hmm. that you need uh, oxygen. And so that's what we did. I, mm -hmm. I, I did not play silly doctor. I can ride this out at home. I just watched for all the stuff because I was fortunate enough that I knew what it was. Mm -hmm. And so I got myself into the hospital. And how long were you admitted into the hospital? I spent uh, 21 days, three weeks in the hospital. Wow. And what was the, the course from the time you got admitted to the time you left? Yeah, so for, first day was, um, you know, we just got settled in, was doing okay. The next day, my oxygen, I needed to get increasing amounts of oxygen from two liters to four liters to six liters, the usual prongs in the nose. And so I went in on a Saturday on Sunday, I had I needed six liters, and we moved the, to the intensive care unit. On that Monday, we changed the rules. They were evolving this rapidly because we were filling up the ICUs and said, now we'll go up to 10 liters on the floor, mostly because we had to because we didn't have enough ICU. So I got kicked out of the ICU, which was appropriate. Fine, that's what we were doing. We're triaging beds. We're learning how to uh, do this. And then 
later in the morning. Later that day, I needed to move up to the 10 liter threshold and went back to the ICU. Wow, that's amazing. And then, uh, so this must have been a very, very scary time as your oxygenation was deteriorating and you had taken care of a lot of COVID patients at that point. What, what was going through your mind? You know, Paul, it's really interesting, and everyone asked me this, and, and I can't explain it, but I wasn't that scared. I, I, I knew what the disease was, and I knew I could die from it. And in fact, at that time, and the mortality rates are a lot different, but once you were hospitalized with COVID and needed oxygen, back then, very early in the pandemic, our mortality rate was 15%. So I knew as I got in the car in my driveway with my PCP that I had a one in six chance of not surviving this. And I'm just, you know, analytic and I do research and stuff. So I was just, and I'd say comfortable wasn't the word, but I just knew what the facts were. But I was going to a spectacular hospital. Now everybody brags about their hospital and I will brag about my hospital, but but I'm also in a tertiary quaternary care uh, center. That's where I practice. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in a major, major medical uh, uh, center that has seen lots of uh, COVID. So I was very confident in the care that I would uh, receive. And so we just went in and then when I needed to go to the ICU, I knew what it meant. And then I knew the next step was gonna be whether I was gonna get ventilated or not. We didn't wanna do that because once you get on the ventilator, then the mortality rates jumped up to 40 to 50%. Hmm. And so I, was, I wasn't scared. Well, if, I was scared for my family, though, because they were going through this. Mm -hmm. And where was your wife? To, I assume she couldn't visit you. No, but, but it, and so it didn't matter. She, she felt bad. But um, probably about the third day when we were just getting hammered with COVID at the hospital, and I was sending patients to the ICU every day on my service. Um, we talked about it for the first day or two that I was on the service. Should she move to Texas, uh, you know, to live with uh, my, uh, stay with my uh, son? Uh, my daughter's house wasn't big enough to accommodate her and, um, and, and stuff. So um, we uh, uh, talked about that and she was hemming and hawing. And I called her, I remember when I was rounding one morning and said, I'm not coming home until you're gone. Mm -hmm. I said, pack your bags, call both of the kids to tell her that's what she did. And so we're gonna have a kiss goodbye because I called her up and said, don't be home when I come home. Mm -hmm. Text me when you're on the road because I'm not coming home until then. And I was doing the usual stuff that, because I didn't want her exposed, which was the right uh, decision. So she spent a couple of months in, um, in Texas with my son but he, he's not married. And so what was really in hindsight really worked really well for that is then the two of them didn't have to go through the stress of me being so critically ill by themselves. So in retrospect, that was really a good thing for, for them emotionally. And, how and she was probably, she was already in Texas before I got sick because I sent her home a day or two after I started rounding on COVID patients. Got it. And then what was the course after you went to the ICU when you'd been met that 10 liter threshold? Yeah, well, then we um, and then I was probably about uh, four days in the ICU just with every day needing more and more um, oxygen. 
but I, but other than that, I was, I mean, I was uh, feeling good. We got on a bunch of steroids. We were using stuff back then, you know, we're, we're on hydroxychloroquine. No one uses it now, but we did know back then. So anything that we knew of was getting thrown at me. But uh, it was it was just the, the dyspnea. I, I joked, I said, if I wiggle one toe, I'm not short of breath. If I wiggle two toes, I can't breathe. So, it, which is typical of COVID. In fact, we test everybody, not just at rest, but when we see if they need to be hospitalized, we walk them to see if the oxygen levels uh, go down. So with any exertion, uh, there was a lot, a lot of uh, can't breathe. And, and probably progressively, I was going from half sentences because I couldn't even complete a full sentence to sometimes a couple of words at a time. And I uh, joke with people, I said, I was getting down to sometimes a couple of syllables. I can remember doing FaceTime and most of my conversations were just shaking my head, literally not enough air to even uh, uh, breathe, to talk. And I understand the fatigue, can, well, I shouldn't say I understand, I've taken care of patients who have just been so fatigued they can barely make the effort as well. They want to do is sleep. How, how were you passing the days there? Were, were you just trying to rest as much as you could? Yeah, I was tired, but other than that, I think once I got on the steroids, I, w I was feeling a little better that, and of course, you know, the not breathing sort of dominates that, so the aching muscles isn't that big of a deal anymore, and of course, you're all ramped up also, because I I, I, I know this train keeps going in the wrong direction down the uh, track, and, you know, it was, you know, it was heading towards, uh, you know, being on a uh, ventilator, and I knew what that what that meant from a risk of uh, death. So, so you know, I, I, the, the rest of the things were less important uh, to me. But no, I was um, doing emails. In fact, I, uh, I joke I'm, uh, I'm part of an organization for uh, anticoagulation in thromboembolic disease, and we knew there was lots of clotting going on with this, and that's one of my areas of expertise. So we had a conference call uh, with the organization called the Anticoagulation uh, Forum, and we were going to put on a webinar about these clots because we were very early in and we, we have thousands of members. And I think that webinar got a couple thousand uh, people watching that. And we were planning that. And the folks that were on the planning call said, this is the best conference call we've ever had with Scott because he's not saying much, because he can't <laughs> read and he can't talk. So we can get our ideas out there. So we, uh, we, uh, so I was on that and planning and doing some work. And I, I remember re uh, reviewing uh, a protocol uh, to how to prevent uh, blood clots that one of my colleagues was uh, uh, putting uh, together in the ICU because my, my mind was good. It was, and if I could read and didn't have to move, I was actually feeling quite fine. Mm -hmm. And how, at the point at which you had that conference call about the uh, uh, coagulation and such, how many leaders were you on? Do you remember? Uh, I, well, I, I, I know, but I was on a, uh, at that time, I was on a non-rebreather because I can remember because you can't talk through the mask. So I'd have to pull the mask off to just be able to have people hear me. And I could only do that for five, 10 seconds at a time. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> and I understand that during, while this is all happening, your dad got sick. 
And so when I was, so back up when I was rounding, so he, um, my, my brother actually called my brother who lives in town and he had been sick for four or five uh, days. Uh, dad was 82 and my brother went in and literally, dad's not a big man, he never has been. And my brother literally had to kick him up off the couch and carry him to the car and then picked him up and put him in a wheelchair at a very tiny uh, hospital uh, near his home. And they looked at them and then they shipped him to a, from the emergency room to a uh, community uh, hospital. I mean, we're talking about he was in a 10 bed hospital and moved him to a 100 bed hospital in a community hospital. The really, and this was two days, two days before I got sick actually. And so I did everything I can to try to get him moved to my hospital um, and we had no uh, beds, uh, but I had a lot of relief when I talked to who happened to be a, a medical school classmate of mine and we both trained at Henry Ford and he literally was the smartest uh, guy in, the, uh, in my class. And that gave me a lot of relief when I knew he was taking care of him as a critical care uh, uh, lung doc. And then, um, but still, I, I, I had lots of solace there, but I wanted to get him moved. And it took me a while to get dad moved. And then I can remember when I was in the intensive care unit, the person that was running beds that day happens to be uh, one of my uh, members of my division who I know well. And I called her up and I said, Amy, I'm running out of air. I'm in the ICU, you know. I might not be able to have this call again because I knew I might be uh, intubated. And I said, you know, what do you have? And she, I remember this so distinctly. She said, I don't know why, but I got three empty beds right now and I'm bringing him down. In fact, Paul, it, that might've been exactly a year ago today that I had that uh, call from the ICU to her. And as soon as dad was coming down to, to Henry Ford, I got to tell you the angst. My, you tell me what I was worried about? I was worried about dad. That all melted away. And then I transferred uh, me taking reports from uh, uh, doctors and nurses and transferred that over to my uh, sister, just realizing that I was very well could be out of it in the next day or two, which happens to be I was. Mm -hmm. So at that point, he was transferred directly into the ICU at Henry Ford. Oh yeah, he was on he was on a ventilator. We we went from ICU community hospital to ICU. He was a floor above me. So he was on a ventilator, and you were on the verge of going on a ventilator at that. Yeah, time. yeah, we ended up both being on a ventilator at the same time. Wow. So so then, in terms of your course in the ICU, how long was it after your dad arrived that you went on the ventilator? Uh, it gets a little fuzzy, probably a couple of days. Dad had already been on a ventilator at the other uh, hospital. So dad had been on a ventilator probably about 10 days when I got intubated. I actually got intubated on uh, Easter uh, Sunday. And then re really the, the, the tough part is so what I was scared about is dealing with the family. Is so, but we had the 50-50 chance that this was goodbye phone call with my uh, kids and my wife. Um, just on uh, FaceTime on my uh, on my phone, and um, and I can remember also uh, telling my son, I said, "All right, write this down. Here's all the passwords." 
here's where the retirement accounts are, here's where the life insurance policies are, you know, let's make sure at least that we are financially, um, you know, safe. I had called my uh, in, uh, investment counselor and, um, and said, because the market was taking a nosedive, and I said, you know, we always said that, you know, when you get ready to retire and you don't have any more income, we change the investment portfolio. I said, you got to do that. Bad time to sell stock, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I had a 50-50 chance that I was going to uh, die. And um, and so I, I, I couldn't have, you know, the savings keep doing this nosedive. I had to have at least enough for my family to uh, take care of themselves. Wow. So and that was just before you went on the ventilator. Oh, yeah, the, the, um, uh, it was uh, a, a dear colleague and friend of mine, uh, Jace, came in to uh, reassure me and said, I'm going to have one of the anesthesiology uh, colleagues and critical care docs who ended up taking care of me come in. I can't keep you off the ventilator. At that point, I was getting all the oxygen you can possibly give without being on a, uh, on a uh, ventilator and it wasn't working. I said, yeah, I know. There was no surprise. I had watched this for a day and a half, you know, kept coming, coming, coming. I knew this. But they were suiting up when I was having a phone call with my uh, with my family and getting ready to do, uh, do this. Wow. And how long were you on the vent? Eight days, but five days of, uh, of uh, critical. Um, so I was... Um, so of course, when you get knocked out and you go on the ventilator, then you know, you know, say say uh, good night. But but I was in septic shock for about three days, and two or three days, my wife was getting reports that they just said nothing was working, and it was looking apparently pretty bad. I was just taking a nap. I was everybody else was doing all the work. So yeah, so it was about five days. It was was very very uh, touch and go, and then. It was, and then on the the fifth day, I remember it was in the afternoon, I, bam, woke up like that. Now, I understand from being a doc, I understand people were, were lightening up my sedation and making sure I could squeeze hands and open my eyes, but I don't remember any of that. So the what the team did to keep me comfortable while I was uh, critically ill, and they were also doing proning, I think most people know that, but... The amount of work to prone someone, because it takes a, it's about four or five people in about a 20, 25 minute uh, process, because you got to keep a track of all the tubes and all the IV lines and there's stuff everywhere. And then you flip the patient over on their stomach for 16 hours, which is hard to evaluate them because they're face down. And then it's rotisserie. And then after 16 hours, it's eight hours back on your back. And then you come and do that again. And so it's, you know, it's eight, nine uh, person hours of work each day just to go through the proning uh, cycle, just the amount of work that it takes to take care of these uh, patients. And that was all happening to me. But all I remember is folks said, Scott, we're going to put you out and intubate you. And, you know, that's, you know, people have had procedures. It goes like that. And then I woke up just like that. And I remember the nurse coming in and um, and she saw my eyes open. She said, are you okay? Yeah, you can't talk. You have a tube in your throat. And, so, and I was fully awake. 
if I had had my phone, I would have been texting my uh, family and doing emails and reviewing a manuscript. I was that, <laughs> I, I was that awake. I was, uh, I was watching CNN an hour uh, later and, um, and stuff. And, um, and the only reason is, and this is not at all a problem, but, but in the transition that was sick and they moved rooms and stuff, um, we, we, we lost my phone along the uh, way. I would have been texting with my, uh, uh, with my family and uh, reassuring everybody. And the nurse was actually a, little, a bit surprised as the story goes, because she called my wife and said, he's wide awake. It usually doesn't just snap back like that. And so she lent me her phone in a baggie. And, and then that was a, so, but my wife wasn't surprised because the nurses had already filled her in and stuff. But, uh, but that was a good day. So they had intentionally lightened up the sedation at that point? I don't know, uh -huh. but I know that that's standard care. So when mm -hmm. I say I bam woke up, I don't I woke up. I don't think it's like in the movies where you see where someone comes out of the coma instantly and surprises everybody. I'm sure they were doing that, but I don't remember any of that. Mm -hmm. I remember the lights went out, I got intubated, the lights came on and when they came on they were fully on. Mm -hmm. And then what happened over the next, it sounds like you were on the vent for a couple more days after that? Yeah, a couple more days. That's just the usual, and I know from my training, although I don't do this work anymore, that's just making sure the lungs are working. And then what they do is they turn off the ventilator for a while and make sure you can breathe on your um, own. And it's called weaning trials and stuff like that. And took just a couple of days uh, to do that. So I, I weaned uh, pretty rapidly for how sick I was. And then how long were you still in the hospital after they extubated you? Yeah, so uh, great. And, and, and it's funny because my PCP heard I got extubated. And he snapped a picture of me about an hour after I got the uh, tube out. I got a big thumbs up that for a long story ended up on the front page of the Detroit Free Press um, about a week later. So, so I always give Sean credit for that uh, picture. Well, I was ready. So um, probably I got extubated on a Monday. Tube came out on a Monday. On a Wednesday, we were starting pole uh, uh, lines, get rid of lots of the uh, tubes and uh, stuff, and uh, send me out. But when we pulled one of the big IVs in my neck, it jiggled a clot loose. And oh. so I had a uh, pulmonary embolism clot broke off and went to my lungs. So that got everybody excited. So we uh, started blood thinners, went back down, got another CAT scan, uh, showed that. So since my lungs were pretty precarious with COVID, they kept me in a couple more days. And they might have uh, kept me in an extra day, you know, a little bit. You know, this is a doc. I'm not sure if that played in it or not. But also, I think because I was so severely ill uh, that they um, that we uh, watched that. So that uh, set me back a couple of days. I went from the ICU to the regular floor in less than 24 hours after being transferred out of the ICU. I was on my way home. And how did they diagnose the pulmonary embolus? Did you just suddenly take a quick drop off in your oxygenation and they were like that? this is not the normal course? Or how did well, they diagnose that? Well, it was so easy because when we pulled the line out, um, I got huge amount of chest pain 90 seconds uh, afterwards. Mm -hmm. My oxygen uh, levels uh, plummeted. It wasn't hard. I mean, the nurse was literally ungowning who had pulled my line and she 
turned around and came in and and I told her I said I have a pulmonary embolism. Mm -hmm. You know, we just we just wiggled the clot off. I mean, but this was so easy of a diagnosis. Anyone could make this diagnosis. I think you're saying you diagnosed. I knew exactly what it was and Uh and um, and and it was, but it was an easy diagnosis. It was just a small one. It Uh was just a tiny pulmonary embolism. So I think you're saying you diagnosed your own pulmonary embolus, which is well, I mean, impressive. Well, my, my, my goodness, if housekeeping had been in the room, they could have diagnosed it. It wasn't hard to figure <laughs> out. So as you were becoming more and more ill and, you know, getting closer and closer to the ventilator, were there moments where you were kind of looking back on your life and were, were you having any regrets about anything or were, were you sort of more thinking about, the forward nature of your life that that's not when it hit me when it hit me is the days when i was unconscious on the ventilator so now of course you have to give medications and narcotics and other things to keep the patient calm and so they don't have the pain and so they're going through this and so they don't remember all the stuff that's happening to the body so my my team did a great uh, job with that but i had i had I had the full psychedelic uh, light show. Uh, my mind was racing while I was on that because I'm on steroids and I'm on, uh, you know, the equivalent to adrenaline with vasopressors now that I know and, and stuff like that. But I had the proverbial, it felt like days of my light flashing uh, before my eyes. Scenes, random scenes, as fast as you could imagine them pop through. So when you hear these things, if I felt the light uh, flash before my eyes, you know, in sort of a pre-death experience, I had that. In fact, when I finally woke up, I asked how many days, because I couldn't see the date calendar without my glasses, and how many days, and I didn't know if I had been out for hours, days, weeks. I mean, I had no concept of a time. But when when I was told that it was five days, that did not surprise me, because I had that. It felt continuously. In fact, it was interesting then sometimes, and I had the quintessential bright light. In fact, I can actually remember, and I'm not talking about once or twice, dozens of times. I can remember me thinking, steer away from the bright light. I don't know what this is, Paul. I was stoned on narcotics anyway, so take that for what it is. I have that. I have her thinking about the family. I I must have said 10,000 times, you know, my family is my rock, and that is why I'm going to uh, live uh, uh, through this. But that was really a fascinating experience. And then I can remember many times is I must have, you know, quote, gone asleep, whatever that is when you're hallucinating. And I would wake up and I would go, well, huh. I, you know, awake, whatever that is, when, you know, but the lights and the, and the sound and the music uh, was uh, back on. And I said, well, that's good. I didn't die. We'll take that. <laughs> and so that's uh, so that must have been going on for about five days, because that's or at least four days, because that's when I understand I was really, really sick. And the bright light was uh, what you thought, even in that state of mind, was death. Is that correct? Well, well, I, I, I can remember. It it, it it was coming at me though. It was always in the it was always in the right lower quadrant, you know, about five o'clock in your visual field, whatever that visual field is when you're unconscious and uh, uh, doing that. But you know, it's probably all the stories we've always read. But I can remember, you know, 
a bright light, and I can remember steering my attention away from the bright light. <laughs> so, Fascinating. There's, there's a scene in the movie Shrek where, where it says, donkey, stay away from the light. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that's what ingrained in me or what. But anyways, I had it. My mind was doing whatever it wanted to. Huh, your Shrek moment while you're yeah. intubated and, and heavily sedated. During this time, how was your dad doing? Uh, well, he, he, he was sick and on the ventilator also. So I'll, I'll tell you a, a, a dad's story. So when I got home... I got home on a, I remember on a Saturday after three weeks. And then on that following Tuesday, we, um, our hospital was uh, doing weekly press conferences. And the idea at that time was convalescent uh, plasma. That was a new therapy and, and, and stuff. And so someone said when they were planning that on the Monday for the Tuesday um, inter, um you know, press conference, uh, they said, well, you know, first of all, I think they said, did, did our first patient that got convalescent plasma, did they live or could we get a convalescent plasma patient on with that? You know, you have to talk to the patients. And, and someone looked up and I said, well, I'll be darned. It was Kate. He's our first patient that got a convalescent plasma. So that's how I got tagged. So I, I, I jump on the, you know, just our uh, webinar, you know, press conference and stuff like that. And then one of the uh, one of the free press reporters that was on that called our relations, uh, you know, media relations. And they called me back up and said, could we do another story? So we got the family on with me because I was feeling great. I was out of the hospital just three days. I was feeling really, really uh, good. I was just weak and tired and, you know, I'd lost 25 pounds or so. But other than that, the home by myself. Um, and so we uh, did that, the aforementioned picture, the next morning on, on, on the uh, front page and lead story in the uh, Detroit uh, Free Press, you know, doctor that got COVID, got five treatments and, uh, and, and lived. And I'll be darned if it didn't snowball. And the next uh, day, which was a Thursday, I was on um, I was on CNN with uh, Aaron uh, Burnett uh, live. And what was really interesting is dad had got extubated off the ventilator for the third time now, just before that uh, press conference. So I was on cloud nine. So I'm talking that up and mm -hmm. saying how happy we were and dad was uh, uh, doing good. And then when I was live on CNN, I actually, the nurses turned, because um, dad was off the ventilator, turned CNN on now. He was always cloudy with his uh, uh, thinking uh, throughout his whole uh, stay. He's a big Michigan State uh, Spartan fan. I'm a huge Spartan fan. Dad went into the ICU with his Spartan baseball cap on. So I tip, mm -hmm. I, I asked Aaron, can I say hi to my dad? What's he going to say? No, because he said it's sick with COVID. And I grabbed my uh, Spartan cap and I uh, tipped it to dad. And we ended that that was a really good night and of course my my uh you know text messaging blow up because i've just been on national uh tv and everyone's asking how dad's doing and we were that was a real high that lasted till about 9 uh p.m and uh six hours and 38 minutes later the phone rang uh 3 uh 38 uh, a.m and it was the icu and dad was going back on the ventilator and i knew that that was that was going to be the last uh, time 
And then that was a Friday morning and we, uh, all the kids on a Monday got a call and said, do you want to come in and see your dad? And uh, most people dropped the phone because there was no visitation. My um, sister came up from uh, Dallas and the next day we all went all into the ICU and uh, withdrew care and let dad die peacefully with his four kids around the bedside. Wow. Wow, I'm sorry to hear that. But I'm glad that you guys could be there at the end. Yeah. And so at that point, you had been discharged from the hospital or you were still in the hospital? When no, you- I'd been discharged. I, I, I came out of the hospital um, about 11 days before dad died. Okay. So he was in for quite a while, like over a month. He was in for yeah. several weeks before me and another week and a half after me. Wow. Yeah, so he had a he had about a six week uh, course on and off the ventilator three times. Hmm. So, so Scott, in your article in recent article in the Journal of Hospital Medicine uh, under the leadership uh, column, you talk about three areas where experiencing COVID in this way, both with your dad being ill and you being ill and taking care of many COVID patients, that it's somewhat changed how you practice or how you look at the practice of medicine. Can you just briefly talk about those three areas? Yeah. So first of all, so I, I, I hope, uh, you know, my, my colleagues, my nursing colleagues and everybody else uh, know how much I appreciate them. But sitting in the intensive care unit, because this is different now, everybody that comes in the room now is risking their life. And back then, we didn't know what the rates of healthcare workers were going to be with this, but I was an example that you can get pretty sick uh, from it uh, by taking care of patients. But it wasn't just the nurses who, by the way, are in the room way more than anybody else, you know, and we all know that, but real exemplified because every time they go up, they're risking their life. So they're doing that. But housekeeping is doing that. Nurse aid is doing that. I can remember that the, the toilet wasn't working and it was running all the time in my ICU room. The maintenance person has to gown up and risk their life to make the toilet from stop uh, running. You know, So it's everybody was doing that. But COVID puts a new thing on this. People are risking their lives. The folks that were transporting me to, uh, to uh, uh, x-rays and getting CAT scans, etc. They're all uh, uh, doing that. So the appreciation from that and watching that in my article, I said from the other side of the stethoscope and the endotracheal tube, it, it a deeper uh, uh, appreciation than I uh, had before. That was number one. Number two, communication was so key. I remember I had a short, and this is the practical thing I've uh, done. I had a uh, my iPhone cord in my iPhone but the way that all hospital rooms are situated, I would have to reach up over my head and pull my phone out from under my pillow uh, to disconnect it. And there was no way I, I couldn't roll over in bed. In fact, I was so short of breath at some point that it took a huge effort to reach my hand up over my head to grab my phone, to tug on it, to have it unplugged. I was out of breath doing that just so I could have a communication aid. So what I now have on the floor that I round on a whole bunch of chargers and really long cords that I lend uh, my patients because communication, of course, with COVID, with the visitor restrictions, it's even more important, but it was more important before COVID and it will continue to uh, have that. So I will always have 
it, what, it's going to cost me 10 bucks to buy a charger. I bought you know, a bunch of them and they get there. And if they don't get returned, who cares? Uh, that's a practical thing that I've done to keep that communication up. And then uh, faith. Um, you know, the number of people that were praying for me and all my text messages and stuff I always ended in, you know, we're thinking about you and we're praying about you. And then just recently after I gotten out of the hospital, I read a, a paper that I think I quoted in the Annals of Internal Medicine that was talking about, about 90% of patients have faith. Maybe that not that many have, you know, a, a strong religious belief in an organized religion, but they clearly have faith and whatever uh, concept that is. And so I, I try to incorporate that a lot more than I had with my, uh, with my uh, patients. And, you know, pastoral service consults, I write uh, for those much more than I, I did before. Uh, and I've told everybody because it would be, it would be rude not to, to acknowledge how many people were praying for me. So the story I have when I said I had these, you know, continuous thousands of scenes from my life, I always tell everybody, I think those were the prayers getting through. So those are the three areas um, that have, have yeah, changed. Yeah, acknowledge my patient's faith, really uh, deeply appreciate uh, my, uh, uh, my co-workers, and then improve communication and, and tools that my patients can keep in communication with their family members and me, which I think I've always done. I, I pick up the phone all the time when I say I want to explain something. Do you want your your significant other, children, parents on the phone as I as I walk them through so we can explain you know disease processes that that I've been doing for a long time. And reeling back even further than that, because really what you've just described here is a slow motion near death experience in every way. How has all of this changed your perspective on life? Oh yeah, so great uh, question. So I, um, less monies and worry go into the retirement fund and more go into how we're going to enjoy this uh, now. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you an, an, another um, anecdote. So after all the press and stuff like that is, um, is that about a couple of weeks after I'm out of the hospital, 10 days, um, I, I get a call again from our media relations and said, Michigan State wants to uh, uh, do a uh, story. So, you know, I'm tipping tip a Michigan State Spartan hat to dad who's a Spartan on, you know, CNN. And so, yeah, so it doesn't surprise me that gets picked up. Well, my media relation uh, person, uh, God lover, uh, she completely snookered me. We get on with the two folks that are going to do the interview, and it's the head football and basketball coach at Michigan State, just giving back and talking to a Spartan, you know, kind of glad you lived and sorry your dad had that. And I had the whole family on at that time. So that was, you know, that was sort of a... Um, so we had been talking about putting a, a new deck on the uh, back of the uh, house and, you know, enjoying that with the uh, neighbors and et cetera. And so uh, uh, Tom Izzo, uh, the uh, basketball coach at Michigan State, sort of says, asked me the same exact question. And I said, well, I guess I'm going to start spending some money. And my wife chimes in and goes, yeah, we're getting a new deck. <laughs> so, so thanks a lot, Tom. You made me spend a lot of money. <laughs> so Meg jumped right on that. So, uh, so 
So trying to uh, live a bit more in the moment instead of kick the can down the road a little bit. Mm -hmm. So the audience of this podcast, in case you don't know, is it's like uh, kind of future medical students, it's medical students, it's residents, it's uh, faculty at various medical schools, and a fair number of Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine members. Do you have any other words of wisdom after this experience for our listeners? No, I, I, I guess if one thing, uh, probably the fundamental thing that this has changed my uh, practice would be is really incorporate and ask your patients about their faith, not just, you know, do you want to talk to the family members or friends about that, but pay attention to that spirituality, you know, where we're, we're, we're trained to take care of the emotional aspect and get to know your uh, patient. And certainly we're in charge of, uh, of taking care of the uh, uh, body with that. But, but, but don't, the, the mind and body, we're taught to do that, but don't forget about the soul and your patient's soul. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Well, Scott, I want to thank you for joining me on Mountain Lion Podcast. And uh, I really, really have enjoyed talking to you and hearing about your experience. Sorry to hear about your dad, but I'm glad all of his kids could be there at the end. Thanks so much, Paul. Epilogue. It's hard to listen to Scott's story and not then stop to reflect on the pandemic. Close to 600,000 Americans have died from COVID, and some epidemiologists estimate that number may be closer to 900,000 if indirect COVID-related deaths are included, all those people who avoided seeking health care for fear of catching the virus. And then there's the over 3 million people who've died across the planet. While Scott left no doubt that he owes his life to the staff of Henry Ford, he was fortunate. You could even talk about how lucky he was. I usually struggle with music choices for these podcasts, but not with the music for this podcast. The song leading into this was Lost Things by Jake Howden. Right now you're listening to Someone to Watch Over Me, performed by Keith Jarrett. As far as the exiting music that you'll soon hear, it was playing in my head, literally, as I listened to Scott's story, a song called How Lucky. It was written by John Prine and is here performed by John Prine and Kurt Vile. John Prine, you may already know, died from COVID infection early on in the pandemic. But before we dive into that last song that ends this podcast series on surviving crisis, I want to bend your ear a moment more and read a poem by Amit Majmadar called An American Nurse Foresees Her Death. It is from a collection of poems that I have been working my way through called Together in a Sudden Strangeness, America's Poets Respond to the Pandemic, which is edited by Alice Quinn. The poem reminds me a lot of how I felt seeing patients before we all got vaccinated, a fatalistic sense that I would contract the virus and die from it, but accepting that possibility as what I signed up for when I went to medical school. I think a lot of frontline workers in healthcare probably thought this way, but didn't talk much about it. For me, and this may sound a little random to some of you that were too young to remember this event, but every single day I drove to the hospital, I thought about September 11th, 2001, 
of that small army of firemen, police officers, and other public servants in Lower Manhattan who ran to the Twin Towers because they were doing their jobs, despite what the consequences could lead to. They and my family were my quiet inspiration for just hanging in there and doing what we all had to do, what we were supposed to do, regardless of the consequences. So again, this is called An American Nurse Foresees Her Death. I stepped out of a kill zone shaped like a bedroom, then went home to sleep in my garage. This hand that sponged the fever off a body waves at my kids through the living room window. I texted my husband through a weeping wall. The scrubs go in a mommy hamper I warned my kids away from with a Crayola skull and crossbones. The face on the laptop doesn't let on how the knuckles sanitized raw bleed in blue gloves and lunch is an apple between codes. When the shift ends, if it ever ends, I ghost the perimeter of my own life and set the alarm for 4.30 in the morning. The virus doesn't want me working. The virus wants to grant me days of rest, a bed of my own in a kill zone shaped like a break room. Nurses I know are nursing nurses through the never-ending fevers, ending them. That will be me soon, one or the other, or one then the other. That sign out last Friday. We didn't say bed numbers. We said first names. Again, Amit Majmadar. So finally, before we go, I want to thank my guests who so generously took time out of their busy lives to talk with me for the Surviving Crisis podcasts. I cannot thank them enough for sharing their incredible stories with me and also with all of you. Those guests were Drs. David Zoss, Kathy Cretian, Elise Boykin-Harris, Cheryl McBride, Scott Cates, Mark Henderson, Helen Chu, and Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine staff member Sheila Costa. I am forever indebted to them for allowing me to speak with them. Have a great day, everyone, and thanks for listening to this podcast. One, two, one, two, three. day I walk down the street I used to wander Yeah, I shook my hand and made myself a bet But it was all these things that I don't think I remember Hey, how lucky can one man get? my shoes and I hum from the rearview mirror Brian's the admiration in a blind spot of regret There was all these things 
There's no thing I remember Hey, how lucky Yeah. 